Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast losing its marbles. My name's Corey Hazel-Lest and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. I'll tell you who hasn't lost their marbles, Steve. Who? The British Museum. Because hey. once again, Mr. Sinek has focused with laser-like precision on the big issues that the general public really care about. is isn't just yeah. fighting random culture wars. Uh, yeah, such a serious politician, he can't even have a civil disagreement with another international leader. That, that, that genuinely made me quite angry when I read about that. He's just not very good at politics. And I mean, this is the theme of the episode, I suppose, isn't it? Is um, we haven't recorded in six weeks. And by jingo, Steve, a lot has happened. has changed that's the wrong prime minister steve because we're about to talk about david cameron because david cameron has come back like this is a terrible end of season box set for a government uh, a mate of mine uh, had the most succinct um uh observation um it's that basically the current uh conservative government is basically like the uh, tv show the walking dead in terms of how it's kind of progressed and and everything so you've got, uh, in terms of like the prime ministers that we've had and everything. So you start okay. uh, season one, everyone thought it was a bit dull, but looking back, it was much better than we thought, just because everything's kind of gotten so much worse. Still bad, but in a, in a lot of ways. But, but you know, it was just like, oh, God. Uh, season two, like everything's kind of going really quite well in terms of how, uh, a lot of different things for, from their perspective. And it's just ridiculous which, then, which bit of the government is this sorry is this the <laughs> only shambles budget yeah pretty much right, uh, okay um and it just progresses and progresses and progresses and uh you go back you just go you've got like budget cuts with cameron coming in and suddenly everything produ- production quality starts to drop off with Theresa may and suddenly uh you, you have like very short seasons cut off by strikes in the form of liz trust and everything and it's just like Oh no! This is actually a very badly written t- a political drama at this point, isn't it? Before we talk about the wider direction of the government, I have possibly an unpopular opinion about David Cameron, and it's an unpopular opinion that involves the British Constitution. So I'm not waiting 50 minutes to talk about it. I'm just going to go straight in there with what our listeners have been dying for us to talk about, which are the constitutional implications of various reshuffles. Because, well, one of the things that has talked about because David they're making I think he, he's Lord Dave of Chipping Norton I believe is his official title isn't it and and so therefore how do MPs hold him to account for his decisions and I don't really think this is a massive problem so we've had lots of foreign secretaries in the House of Lords over the past 50 60 years so Alec Douglas home I think was foreign secretary in the House of Lords Lord Carrington as Foreign Secretary, and in the House of Lords. And you're still going to have junior foreign ministers in the Commons. Um, but, uh, so my my feeling is 
this is going to happen more often, especially given um, we've had a period of relatively younger prime ministers. Uh, so obviously Blair was quite young when he was in office, as was Cameron, um, as was Truss, relatively. And you've got people like George Osborne and Ed Balls and you know Ed Miliband as well, sort of having a bit of a comeback. So I feel like you're going to end up in a situation where more people come back because a lot of these figures aren't staying in the House of Commons for 30, 40 years. They are standing down from the House of Commons then come back. But I think it's also because the composition of the House of Commons in terms of their foreign policy experience has massively changed over the past, well, over the past century, actually. So a bit of a cliche example, but look at the... the um, the Norway debate that brought down Chamberlain in 1940. You know, you had a lot of MPs in that debate who had military experience, had some amount of foreign policy experience. And that isn't the case now. And it certainly isn't going to be the case. Look, again, if anyone's paid attention to any of the parliamentary selections that are going on, by which I mean they're following Michael Crick's Twitter account, detailing all of the shenanigans. One thing that party selectorates are not taking into account when they are selecting their candidates doesn't tend to be do you have any foreign policy experience it tends to be are you local and so i think uh, possibly even particularly for foreign secretary but i can see there being a a role for former prime ministers or former leaders like cameron Miliband to come back but also a need for foreign policy expertise in a House of Commons which doesn't necessarily always have that experience. And if I can sort of, before you come in, the idea that somehow the House of Commons is this great chamber that holds our ministers to account in their weekly Slugfest meetings, I find laughable. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as, as you correctly point out, like it's not actually an unusual thing to have a... Um you know, a member of the House of Lords acting as a Minister of State in some capacity. Like, it's been a while since there's been one, I think, in a great office. Um, Mandelson? But- I, I mean, I realise that's not a great office, <laughs> but it was a, it was a it was big role. role. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so so Mandelson, so when would that have been? Blair, uh, Brown? No, that was, that was Brown, famously. Yeah. Brought back from the dead, as it were. And that was 2008, nine, I think. Yeah, so so uh, quite uh, politically speaking, a lifetime ago. But it's not unusual. It's happened in in various formats. So yeah, like you can't. We won't ne- like the House of Commons won't necessarily be holding David Cameron to account. But also, it's not David Cameron's policy, foreign policy. It's the government's foreign policy. If they actually think that David Cameron's going to be going in there and suddenly making decisions without consulting with Rishi Sunak. Like that's that's not how this works, and Cameron knows that's not how this works, which is one of the reasons he's been brought in. <laughs> one thing listeners couldn't see, but I love the fact you put David Cameron in air quotes during that, as though <laughs> it's just like this essence. Yeah, yeah, he's it's not actually a real person. It, uh, it's more of a movement. It's more than of a, a concept, <laughs> concept of a bastard. Interesting, I suppose commentators talk about the the concept of this being Rishi Sunak returning to centrist Tory politics, which is just slightly hilarious. Well, this this is the thing, though. In comparison to a lot of the other, like, Tories, Cameron is centrist. <laughs> well, 
but again it's but that's that's not how this works though like the yeah. guy is economically firmly on the right and oh, well, firmly sure. on the Thatcherite right and is socially liberal yes but again economically like Theresa May was more economically to the left than David Cameron but probably had more authoritarian instincts and was probably more socially illiberal and again you know yeah. it I, these things are, are complicated and nuanced but the fact it was allowed to be spun as this is Rishi Sunak's triumphal return to the centre ground it's a bit odd but as you say it's um, given given Rishi Sunak's meeting with the Greek Prime Minister being called off I feel like it's not Rishi Sunak has to worry about David Cameron going off message it's very much Rishi Sunak just deciding oh I, I no I, I don't want to see these people because they're going to talk about this thing which they were obviously going to talk about it's the Greeks they're going to bring up the elder marbles it's been a thing for how long well 200 years wasn't it 1813 I think something like that and it's just like it, it is what it is it's always going to be a point of contention until a day where which may or may not happen we, we give them back deal with it like well, and- you have that conversation you you run through the formality of it just in the same way they're running through the formality of it they don't expect you to hand it over you just do it so that you can say yeah they talked about it and then you move on to other things and that's an incredibly cynical view i mean actually in the context of say emmanuel macron giving like statues and to back to benin and former french colonies and i think germany is doing something similar uh, so I, I think in that context there is a reasonable assumption that this is something worth bringing up oh, absolutely. and and also you look at i think there's a yougov poll there's a majority of brits that actually would support the elgin marbles going back to greece this, this is the thing i don't think anyone actually cares particularly about rishi me. sunak cares <laughs> rishi sunak cares so a much a certain type of telegraph reader care but like the vast majority of people like would go yeah right that makes sense that's fine like when we took it was it would it have been beneficial quote unquote to have taken it because it actually kept them more preserved maybe like that's certainly one of the arguments but i don't know how I, true that is i feel that's also not necessarily the point is it if i so if i nick your television and your house burns down i should probably still give you the television back i mean i wouldn't have anyone to plug it in but but i, I feel the point is that but yeah okay no, i might have looked after your television better than if it was in your house but also I did nick your television. Yeah, I mean, I, I was more kind of saying it just to address like one of the the the, the core, I guess, points and arguments that I don't know the pro Britain owning the Elgin marbles put outside puts out, which is oh, they wouldn't have been able to look after it. Like maybe that's true. Maybe that's that. It, maybe it's not. Who really cares? Like, I mean, there's there's hardly any ancient buildings in Greece, are there? That they're oh, no, having to look after. So. I've, I've definitely have they even got anywhere where they would put them steve who knows <laughs> maybe they put them back where the lord elgin chiseled them out with a hacksaw <laughs> back in 1813 it's impossible to tell isn't it i know rishi sunak just demonstrating what an unserious person he is very unserious very petty and also it's a kind of interesting i'm guessing maybe as you say it's that sort of culture war issue but actually most in terms of public opinion, most people don't care. Most people actually do think on the uh, the sort of more, if I can say, the sort of more progressive side of the culture argument without sounding too judgmental. Um, 
And it just feels like it's just more of a failure of the UK to have a proper debate about the legacy of imperialism and just makes us look ridiculous. Or I should say even more ridiculous. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a definite thing. Like, I feel like the only people who are actually probably thankful for the uh, for for Sunak's uh, approach is the uh, is the curators of the British Museum, um, because uh, if we start giving even one thing back, suddenly an awful lot of things in the British Museum, people start going, "Well, can we have that back, please?" Uh, and uh, suddenly we've got no, no we've got nothing in there anymore. Well, either that happens, or maybe. British Museum staff will just start stealing it and selling it. That that is true. That did also happen. But, but, and again, which you know, and again, your point that people have said, yeah, "Oh, the Greeks the doesn't look it, after yeah. this." <laughs> you know, we, we safeguard them patriotically by selling them off for cash. <laughs> okay, fine. So, speaking of failed attempts to rile up culture wars, which don't resonate with a lot of the population, I suppose the other big story in the reshuffle was the sacking of Swilla Braverman. Yeah, it finally happened. A fizzle than a bang, which... Until the letter, I suppose. And even then, the letter didn't do anything. Well, it it was very much firing across the bows, I feel. Yeah, it was was firing across the bows, a positioning statement by Swilla Braverman for whenever the next Tory uh, uh, leadership contest is. That's what it was. Because ultimately, the Veranda plan doesn't bloody matter. It does nothing meaningful, and yet for some reason it has become this totemic issue for the right of the Tory party. Um, even though it's, what, 200 people they've agreed to take or something stupid like that? Well, it can't happen because one of them, again, one of the, I even got to write it down, one of the momentous things is the Supreme Court saying that it, it's illegal. Yeah, it's illegal. Um, and illegal under British law, not even European law. Or and not even under like mm. court of human rights or anything like that. It's the British law is is it is illegal, and so they can change it. And Sunak started talking about it, except he's not going to do it before the election, obviously, because now he's got something he can rally the troops with and go, "We can finally send people to Rwanda if you vote Tory, and no one will care." Well, I think it's more so. James Cleverley, who somehow is still Home Secretary. I think said 13 days ago that in fact it might even be more by the time this episode comes out uh, but 13 days ago said that they were going to bring in emergency legislation but I feel like if you say it's an emergency then I have to wait two weeks it probably isn't an emergency that's not really how emergencies work seems about right and I think one of the more shameful things that a home secretary in fact, then Britain, I think one of the most shameful things a British politician has ever done, and I include Phil Wallace in that, is riling up a bunch of far-right goons to yeah. charge the cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday. Yeah, when, yeah, t- talking, yeah, because like the, there was a thing that Braverman did as well as, I think like the, the, tour, the rest of the Tories kind of leaned into it a little bit as well, um, I'm pretty sure, like Sunak joined in on the oh, with the you know the cenotaph is an important place. We need to you know it shouldn't be a, a, part, a site of protest, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When all of those comments were made, there were no plans to have any protests anywhere near the cenotaph. Well, no, the, the the march was never going to go through there. No, exactly. The, the Gaza uh, march, I mean. 
Yeah, uh, the, there was nothing uh, planning to go anywhere near it. They created the situation where the likes of uh, Tommy Robinson slash Stephen Lennon uh, all kind of got themselves Yaxley all. Lennon. Yeah, sorry, Yaxley, yeah, yeah. Um, are just oh, they actively goaded the far right into trying to cause a, an actual disturbance. That is what they did. That is what Suella Braverman did for the purposes of trying to get one up on the uh, on, on on the left to say, look, see, 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 the left, they're violent. And it's like, well, no, because we weren't going to be anywhere near it to begin with. A couple of weeks ago, Sarah was at a film. I didn't get back in time. I was on the train from London. And I did what any right-thinking man does in the circumstances. I got a Chinese okay, a bottle of wine, and watched Michael Dockerell Michael Cockrell's documentary about Enoch Powell on YouTube. And it's very good. Fun fact about Enoch Powell's living room from 1996. He had a whole line of VHS tapes about the Foresight Saga, which amused me greatly. Sorry, my, my main takeaway from this is so far, despite us being very, very good friends, is we live very different lives. <laughs> it had footage of Enoch Powell in his bath. I didn't really need to see that. Um, Enoch Powell read out some of his erotic poetry he'd written when he was at university. God. It's a very, very interesting documentary. What's particularly interesting is the reaction to Ted Heath of the Rivers of Blood speech. Mm-hmm. And Heath is absolutely crystal clear that this is not any language the Conservative Party is going to be anywhere near. They're not going to engage in this sort of divisive rhetoric. They're not going to try and pit community against community in this way, even though you know they were, they were having to take... Uh, the, the Powell family, the documentary, talk about there being essentially they had their own post van that would come every morning and give them another, you know, 20, 30, 50,000 letters in support. But he, you know, he is someone who he literally was a student in Nazi Germany. He'd been to Nuremberg rallies, he saw what happened and actually had a moral compass and decency about these things. And I think you saw this with the sort of the um um Heath government bring um allowing in the um Ugandan agents who Idi Amin was persecuting as well when he was in government in the early 70s. But there is no way that a conservative politician would take that attitude now. And I suppose so much about Bravman and we could sort of use this as a segue into the immigration figures in the moment. But it was just really fascinating seeing Heath's unwillingness to engage in this sort of divisive rhetoric for his own political end, contrasted with someone like Braverman, who was completely happy to do that to further own ambitions, and someone like Sunak, who took weeks to do the decent thing, and by then it was far too late, frankly. Not to defend Sunak, but in some ways he was he was stuck in between a rock and a hard place there, in that if he doesn't act he's in being slow to basically punish Braverman for doing things that she shouldn't be doing. Um, but at the same time, you get rid of her, you're giving her exactly what she wants, um, which is to be booted out of government so that she can position herself and potentially even, you know, try and lead a charge against against Sunak. Like, he was, it was, like, politically, not that he's, like, it's not to say 
be sympathetic or empathetic towards him in terms of this, but it was a tricky situation for him politically. I, politically, yeah, and I suppose that brought uh, morally, absolutely not. But <laughs> I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? So obviously, like one of the things the brother's making clear in her letter is that she believes her support and the support of the Tory right is what brought Sunak into power. And that's probably right. And we've talked about that on the podcast and the fact that um, that it's quite terrible that this is the case. Um, you know, it's, this isn't Harold Wilson having to sort of keep Tony Benn, Dennis Healy, Roy Jenkins, Tony Crosland in the same tent, right? But it's also, you know, if we're going to be old-fashioned about this and assume that there is morality in politics as there is in any other sphere, and therefore sometimes you've just got to say... I know you're very important, but actually we cannot have this happen. And I think almost like the thing that probably the, like the best political thing would probably would have been to just, you know, bite the bullet, do it and then make a strong play out of it. Like if you do that you and, and you own the decision, you're at least but you, you are effectively daring them to, to actually go to war over the issue, at which point you can go, all right, half of you are going to lose your seats at the next general election, and I control when that is. Do you want to lose them now, or do you want to lose them in autumn next year? At which point, they shut the hell up. If I can quote one of my favourite Red Dwarf lines, that is dumb talk for a guy dangling over a chasm. (laughs) But but I I think there's an element to that, but I I suppose the problem now is you you don't get the benefit of either, do you? You don't get the benefit for having made the sort of strong role decision, and you don't get the benefit, you, you just you get all the attack for looking weak. We can maybe use it to um, segue into the immigration figures. I saw Jim Pickard say this at the Financial Times. It is slightly objectively hilarious. Since Brexit, we've seen the biggest increases in net migration than we've ever, ever seen. So I think it was 742,000, wasn't it, net plus I suppose it's good news for the government, isn't it? Because it proves that Britain's an attractive country that people want to come and work and study in. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that's definitely reflected in the commentary of the discourse. Yeah, I mean, I think the... I want to see Jonathan Gullis try that line and just see what happens. Yeah. Watch his face contort and twitch. It's one of those interesting little things, this this debate, because like, this is only a problem, really, because like since... I'm pretty sure Cameron was the first one who started talking about putting a number on a like an actual figure on this is how many hundreds of thousands of people or whatever will will will, will allow in. I so, think so, but I think also that so I think Cameron said we're going to cut it to the tens of thousands, but yeah. then every Tory government, every Tory manifesto, I think since 2010, uh, sorry, every Tory manifesto since 1992 apparently has placed they'll bring down immigration. Um. I did read that. I haven't checked it, but pretty yeah. sure that's true. That sounds like it should be true. If yeah. it's a fake news, that's good enough, right? <laughs> but yeah, so like this is just because they keep on making it a thing, it becomes a massive, massive thing. Like there are um, like the issues that we've got with like housing and things more generally like uh, that we have we're not building enough houses and then we've got even more people coming in and so on and so forth etc etc like there's elements that you do need to do to be able to like um manage the some of the impact of what having that kind of level of immigration looks like that is just a fact that's not a saying this is a good thing or a bad thing it's just a fact 
you bring people in, they need somewhere to live, you need more houses. And given we're not very, very good at building houses to begin with, and we've got already overinflated rental markets and uh, house uh, and house prices and things like that, there is a actually quite a, a meaty thing to be to for hopefully the next Labour government to get its teeth sunk into. Um, well, and, and, and all the crumbling public infra- infrastructure generally, right? <laughs> yeah, that as well, yeah. Like, oh, we don't have any houses, but at least we've got a fully functioning, you know, school system that schools stay up and uh, yeah, it's just yeah. workforce not on its knees and we actually have a functioning transport system. But yeah, or, but yeah, but, yeah, but again, like the, the, the reality is if you, I, I, I think if you start actually asking people about, you know, questions and polling them on, you know, who should come over here, no one's got any problem with students coming over here. Like, if you separate those numbers out from that, what, 700,000 or whatever it was, um, like, a big chunk of those are students. So you can pull them out, and that number drops, drops drastically. If you then go people who have got a job or whatever, you pull them out, that number drops even, even more. And so you're then just left with a small number of people who are basically just, well, we're the family members of the people who came over here to work uh and like this is like the husband came over and we're bringing the wife and the kids over like a couple of years later once they've actually got their permanence permanency status or whatever that is a thing that happens um and that's what a chunk of this is so like the if you break it down there's not a lot actually amongst these figures that people would say no to like if you actually kind of look into it, so but the the figure itself is so shocking and big, according to uh, everybody else. That but it is really big, like on the graph. It is one hundred percent, and it also is. it is genuinely also a lot of people. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's but, almost as many people who listen to this podcast on a weekly basis. <laughs> we wish. <laughs> this is just such a rod that the Conservatives have made for their own back over the past decade or so. Not helped by the fact that they keep on, do- like, you had Theresa May doing, like, vans, go-home vans and things like that. Made even worse by the fact that they keep on trying to conflate asylum seekers with immigration so that actually when they fail to even deal with asylum seekers effectively they they, they end up getting uh, like heat for that as well mm. because suddenly they're the same thing and it's like well no they're completely different i think there's a lot of truth in that i think then you almost then have to go uh, there was some polling this week i think that that you did and essentially they asked do you want more immigration if it helps the economy and it was kind of split. Immigration seemed much more positively in that sense in the polling. I, I suppose we should sort of the uh, the flip side. Obviously, is that we did have a vote a few years ago on whether we should prioritise the economy or try and take control of our borders and reduce immigration, and that went the other way. You're right in the sense that a lot of this is students who are beneficial. Uh, certainly for universities because I don't know what they assume universities are going to survive on if we don't take foreign students Um, and a lot of it is um, NHS and social care workers but then it does require politicians to say well these are the trade-offs again I'm going to bang with Steve Richard's drum but you you need to educate you need to be a political teacher and tell the electorate about this and explain what the Trade-offs, yeah, and 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 take people with you. You can't sort of hide away from it. 
Absolutely. I mean, in a very similar way, you mentioned like the uh, NHS jobs, which are a big part of where um, a lot of the like, like migrants end up kind of working, not just necessarily in terms of we are bringing in doctors and nurses and things like that, but just porters, you know, and, and kind of more uh, social carers and, and things like that as well. Well, guess guess what? Do you want to know why British people, generally speaking, haven't been applying for those jobs, despite the fact that they exist? Because they don't pay particularly well. Uh, so actually, if you wanted, you want to lower immigration figures, and you want to kind of get more British people into those sorts of jobs, you need to increase how much you're paying them because they are very important jobs, but they're also bloody awful jobs to do in a lot of ways. They're very physical, they're very demanding, and they you can work very uh, ungodly hours. And guess what? People don't want to do it for minimum wage. But it's, it's the same with a lot of the fruit picking jobs, not a lot of those sort of temporary seasonal jobs um so and that's the thing isn't it if you have a, if you have a a skills shortage in your home labor market you can deal with japan has done and invest in robots or immigration or you try and skip you, you could have a plan to fix social care and then the nhs and train some workers and pay as you say pay care workers more now an actual plan for social care. Apparently Boris Johnson had a plan for social care, but I don't think he's mentioned it in one of his Daily Mail columns yet. But of, of that, he's had multiple years to to fix it, didn't he? Yeah. Well, I'm guessing when he's away over Christmas, it'll be one of those kind of off the shelf things. We'll just find it then, and we'll find out what his what his plan is. Obviously, yeah. Um. Right. So we've what? Let me have a look at the list of what we had to talk about: immigration, Cameron. Well, we haven't talked about the autumn statement, have we? <laughs> that was a thing that happened. We, we're getting tax cuts, apparently. Yeah. Paid talk. for by cutting public spending. Yeah. Because, as we've talked about, we don't need investment in our public services. Well, you know, money to fix roads, despite the fact that they made a big play about um, <laughs> about like uh, cancelling HS2 so there was more money to fix roads. In the meantime, what they've then since announced today is uh, Birmingham's losing a load of money to fix roads. Imagine. Well, Rishi Sunak at the moment just feels like someone who is treating his government a little bit like a computer that isn't working. And what you, what everyone does in that situation is essentially you try and press all of the buttons all of the time and you hope that maybe some combination of buttons magically means that the error message goes away. So he tried... Um, breaking from Boris Johnson and saying he was going to be full of integrity and then thought he'd just call Keir Starmer a softy and uh, kind of playground insults. That didn't really work. Then he sort of did a bit of a summer relaunch, which, you know, did have a crime week without a government minister committing a crime, which is an improvement on other conservative administrations recently. But again, just kind of no one was really paying attention the summer. It was all derailed by the the rack crisis in schools didn't really land. So they had a conference speech and he relaunched again and said, I'm going to break with the status quo of the past 30 years. Uh, I'm also going to ban smoking, which uh, the, and actually we talked about this in our previous episode and the New Zealand Cons- Conservative Party have done exactly what you said might happen and stopped it because they said there's going to be a massive black market for smoking. And uh, it'll cost too much tax revenue. So that's not happening anyway. But, you know, that's this is... Rich. So, so he relaunched and said, I'm the voice of change. 
And then did another relaunch in the reshuffle and brought back David Cameron, who's one of the faces of the change that you were, the status quo that you were relaunching yourself about literally six weeks ago. And then you relaunched again in the autumn statement. I, what is going on? I, it's a man desperately flailing whilst drowning. That, yes. that, that's exactly what this is. Like that's that that is the summation of it. That he's got no idea what to do. They've got no ideas. He's got no ideas. And because ideas cost money, which they know they don't want to spend because they don't have any left because they've cut everything so much. And so they're just left with, oh, well, we can cut national insurance and give people an extra, I think it averages out like a £35 a month or whatever. I, I, I worked it out and I think I was, I, I, I would be due like a 50 quid a month or something off the back of that, that uh, NI change. Which it's like not enough to. I mean, granted, I'm a member of the Labour Party. Ideologically, I am so far removed from like where the Tories Reality. are. Yeah, as well. That as well. Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, dog, Steve. <laughs> um, but so, like, in many ways, I'm not necessarily the like a, a fair representation of the the re- of the average voter. Uh, but, looking at the polls at the moment, Steve, you almost certainly are. Well, indeed. But this is the thing, like, is 50 quid a month going to be enough to persuade someone that actually, no, the Tories deserve another crack at this after over a decade? Like, no, it's it's not. Like, an additional 50 quid a month is not going to win people over. Is it going to help some people? Sure. Cost of living crisis has, has bitten quite hard. But it's not going to... There'll be another few plans. Sorry, I, I know I keep interrupting. This this time it's with an actual serious point. Um, but there's a, um, a there'll be a fuel price hike in January. I imagine yeah. that will eat into a lot of that fifty pounds. We know that lots of people are struggling and lots of families are struggling already. So I tend to agree. It's just it's just very incoherent, and it's it's the same with COP twenty eight, right? So David Cameron over there saying his thing and Rishi Sunak is going to be there saying his thing, and they're both flying there in separate planes, which is just what are you doing? Doesn't make any sense. King Charles is going as well. He's going to have a completely different view on climate to Rishi Sunak. All of this that we've talked about all happened in six weeks. And yet we, we haven't even mentioned, and obviously we're not really a foreign policy podcast. We're not necessarily uh, equipped to comment on a lot of the intricacies of the um, Israel-Gaza situation at the moment. All of that's happened over the past six weeks, and the polls are literally the same. It's a change election. The people want change. Like it, like they could act legit. The Tories could legitimately have a plan to bring about world peace, find the cure for cancer that would be guaranteed to work, and you know have a way to suddenly double everybody's um, salaries for for uh, over a ten year period, and it wouldn't matter because nobody would believe them because they've been in power for so long and people are fed up of them. That, that's it. That's the story. Which is, which is why Rishi Sunak is trying to take the change mantle, but it doesn't work. And as you say, a lot of the, a lot of the policies, because they are not, they're committed to not spending very much money. The policies that they're sort of bringing in, are too small and too incremental to really be a proper change and don't they don't really add up to um a proper narrative either it just feels like a man trying to find things to make a legacy about that he might be interested in um 
Oh, and that AI, like we had a Rishi Sunak interviewed Elon Musk. That was a thing that happened. Um, so I, you get the impression that that's something that it does want there to be a legacy on, and that's fine. But again, it's not really what what voters care about. It's not what voters care about. And even if that is the sort of thing that you genuinely do want there to be a legacy on, which is fair enough, it's an interesting area of politics, an interesting area of technological development. I kind of get that. But like, why would you attach yourself to Elon Musk? The man literally today is being reported as basically, was he, gave, he was giving an interview as part of some event or whatever, got asked about all of the... Uh, uh, advertisers that have pulled out of his uh, pulled out of advertising on Twitter, uh, and basically quite literally told them to f off. Yeah, well, it, it's in the same way that it's always the free speech union that seems to stop people from talking. It's Uber free marketeers who don't like it when companies spend their money in a way that they want to. Yes, free speech for me, but not for thee. Yes. Um, I, so, and again, the um, I, I mean, we, we're going to spend so much time in 2024 talking about the election because it's just it's just the thing that is there hovering over British politics. Well, it um, probably won't be a thing until the autumn. Is it January 2025, mate? I'm telling you. Um, we will eventually record the Patreon podcast, but I, I might need to mark a hold to do that. But uh, the the briefings well no they weren't briefings as such the the anonymous people who tell journalists things out of number 10 apparently their hope their hope is based on the fact that 20 percent of voters say that they are undecided which is quite high at this stage for an electoral cycle now obviously Keir Starmer's team will not be complacent and they shouldn't be complacent uh my slightly hand wavy complacent take is I don't think a lot of those people are going to vote. Yeah, I, I think a lot of those 20% are probably going to be your red wall voters who went bojo for that last time, and then that was it. See, I'd almost go the other way. I reckon they are blue wall. I voted Tory in every yeah. election since yeah. 1974. Why have I had... Like, I can't vote Tory. I, in many ways, they are, I think... They're the Tory equivalent of the Red Wall voters that I was speaking to in Wolverhampton North East in 2019, who really didn't think they could bring themselves to vote for Labour and in the end didn't then want to vote Tory. Didn't feel in their bones they could vote Tory either, didn't want to spoil their ballot, or, or you know, maybe they spoiled their ballot or, or didn't vote. But that's that's who again, uh, I've got no evidence for this, but that in my gut. That is who those voters are, and they just go. <laughs> I don't know um, that I think they're homeless, and I just don't. As you, as you, as you said, like, what is the big shiny plan that's going to make them come back? Is it fear of Keir Starmer? Well, I mean, the Tories are going to. Well, they're going to try because Keir Starmer's going to apparently spend twenty-eight billion pounds on. Um, hang on, what is it? Oh yeah, it's uh, renewable energy, so we're not dependent on Vladimir Putin. Oh my God, what a monster! I know, like it's like you're going to attack us for that. Well, mate, we we can spin that as like national defence, <laughs> like but security, right? This is yeah. the this is the framing. Oh well, w- will people trust us? I don't know which party is more trusted on the economy. Oh look, oh, 
well, yeah, just na- name a topic and Labour's more trusted. Exactly. And this is why it's, again, it's very easy to be complacent and, and a lot could happen. But, um, and as you said, they're, they're trying to make issues like immigration work. So I do keep interrupting. I am sorry. But they keep trying to make issues like immigration work. But as you say, the fact they're talking a lot about the small votes, which again, are, are very significant issue in the in the small number of constituencies where it's you know if you're in dover i can appreciate it's more of an issue than you're in birmingham but the fact you talk more about the issue and you and then fail to deliver that there's a sort of a piece of chess strategy advice which is you don't move pawns on the side of the board that you're weak because it just makes your position worse and that's what the government is doing all the time with stuff like this that's a very good analogy setting themselves up with battles they're just not going to win yeah, but one one hundred percent. The the problem is they they are firefighting. They've gone. Oh, we've got a problem. We need to talk about that problem to show that we've got a plan for it. Then they talk about the problem. They don't resolve the problem, and then it comes back round again in in however long. And then it's just like, oh well, we've got a plan to deal with that. And then it it buys them time to a degree, but with each passing plan that nothing actually happens with with it, you just end up. Like with fewer and fewer people believing you, you become the yeah. boy who Uh So if if we be, if we didn't don't believe you the third time you said you're going to deal with the small boats problem, why should we believe you now? If we t- if you said you if we if we don't didn't believe you on the third time that you said you were going to fix the NHS, why would we believe you now? Like what like what the hell is going to be in the Tory manifesto? is actually going to be quite an amusing thing to see. But also amusing is the way that they're sort of saying, oh, we could have an election on the small boats. You go, really? Really? That's your plan? <laughs> you know, cost of living, NHS, public services, all of these, like the economy, massive, massive, massive public issues. And you're going to have it on priority number 12 or 13? Like, it it's one of those things where it only makes sense if what they're doing is they've they've got some polling that shows that their core vote really cares about it in comparison to the rest of the rest of the public and they're just kind of going you know what we've lost this election anyway so let's just try and shore up our numbers because like the polling uh, kind of like estimates that I saw today had Labour at a two hundred and twenty seat majority. The Tories won like 136 seats or something daft like that. Like it was it, the, the the Lib Dems won like almost 50 seats. It's like it was like proper, well, like, yeah, proper de- like de- blood yeah. for the Tories. If they've basically gone, this is what could happen. How can we minimise that as best we can? And they've just gone, you know what? We just need to make sure our vote gets out as best we can. And just because because this is the other thing that we haven't talked about is. Reform, do you remember them? Reform, the Reform Party are sniffing around people. Like they've reached out to Lee Anderson trying to get him to defect. They've reached out to other people, literally offering to pay them to defect. Well, well I, I'm now um I'm now remembering a different part of the Enoch Powell documentary where he's he's speaking at an anti-common market in the referendum. The first the early funny referendum campaign and uh, someone heckles him with Judas and Powell turns to him and raises his finger and says, Judas was paid. Judas was paid. He's doing it out of conscience. Wow. All the up-to-date political references you get on this podcast. 
We can't end on Neil Powell, though. I mean, we could end on Kissinger. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Although I did like the story in Jonathan Wilson's piece in The Guardian of him going to see Grimsby Town with Tony Crosley, who's a massive Grimsby Town fan, and just the idea of Henry Kissinger watching Grimsby Town and then going into the dressing room afterwards. And people like... Who the hell are you? Think, who is this wanker one of the players are supposed to have said? <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. I think that's where we leave it. Okay, fine. Well, uh, you could have listened to the full eight-hour version of this on our Patreon page. Uh, you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash not enough champagne. We're going to try and do these semi-regularly as the election campaign lumbers towards us like what remains of Phil Wallace's soul. So if there's any particular aspect of that election campaign you want us to talk about, do feel free to drop us a line. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. James Cram designed our logo and Dave Tepper composed our theme sheet in Plucky Good Times. Happy plotting. Happy plotting.